Good evening, everybody. G'day, Mike. How are you, mate? Oh, I'm pretty well. Yourself? Bit damp. Pretty ordinary here in Sydney tonight, mate. Bit of wet. There's, yeah. there's been a bit of water about. Oh, I tell you what, I, yeah, I was just very lucky. I was unloading under an awning there this afternoon. Otherwise, I'd have been a lot wetter than I currently am. Yeah, it's causing a bit of turmoil around the state today. I think with um, yeah, a bit of rain here and there. It's amazing how many people. Sorry, go on. Up north, I think there's a few roads closed. And, yeah. 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 You know, it's never going to rain ever again, mate. You know, the rain that does fall won't fill the dams. You know that, don't you? I've heard that once or twice, and I think we <laughs> even put our um, combined tax dollar together to build a diesel plant <laughs> <laughs> just, to, just to help out. But, you know, thought, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, we're getting for 100 years of drought or something. That's right. Yeah. There you um, go. Eh? So, just, just, yeah. Sometimes the scientists just aren't right. Ha! Huh. Who would have oh, thought? Who would have thought? But anyway, welcome everyone to Wednesday Night Live. Welcome, Colette. How are you this evening? I'm well. How are you guys? Good. You've come here to annoy us a little bit. Yeah, half an hour or so for the beginning of the show. Yeah, just right to make on. sure we're keeping on, on, on track. Well, yep. What it, what it is is she's making sure we're not diddling them on the pop card. That's what it is, Craig. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to fill big boots. Yogi's not here, see? Well, I think I think Yogi's been on the beers. I think he has too, mm, from wine? the photos I've received today from very early this morning. <laughs> bit of a wine a wine tour, I believe. And yeah. a chocolate factory, which oh. I've informed um, Amanda that chocolate does travel well on an aeroplane. Mm. It does. For her information. Yeah. <laughs> no, no chocolate here. No chocolate for no you. No chocolate. No. No, no. But anyway. No. Before we go on, Mike, must pay a special thanks to Rentco. Rentco, the Rentco Rig of the Month, our uh, major sponsor in the magazine. Yes, indeed. Mm, so, magazine, just about hot off the press, eh? Well, it should be hot off the press. I think you supplied the uh, list of subscribers to the mailroom today, didn't you? It went off this morning, yep. And uh, a few boxes getting prepared to go around to a few um, BPs and Mm. the cleaning zone and Mortlake Roadhouse. and (coughs) Where else? You're you're up to date on all this stuff. I think you pretty much covered it then, Craig. You're doing pretty well, you and Mike, between us. We just work here, so. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, no, she's ready to go out and... um, yeah, so keep an eye on your mailbox over the next week or so. I, I do think oh, one of the ones we forgot to mention that's docket is Tadiara Truck and Trailer. Oh. Tadiara Truck and Trailer, that's right. Mm. Yeah. But um, just getting back to Rentco, if you're uh, looking for a bit of extra equipment to, to tow you over through some busy times or you've had the misfortune of a prior mover costing you a few few extra dollars than it should... Um, <laughs> That's a nice, that's a delicate way of putting it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, a silent headache. Yeah. Um, silent headache. Yeah, you know, give Rentco a call. They've got some gear there that'll um, get you through the tough times or even if you want to go for a long-term hire, they're still into that as well. Yeah, trucks, trailers of all shapes and sizes all over the place. Every capital city, you can see all the contact details in the back of your Truck and Life magazine or look them up. On the internet, mm, www.rentco.com.au. So, no, thank you, no Rentco. Worries. We appreciate what you do for us. 
Yes, the uh, the support they've given us has been outstanding. It has. So, before we go too much into the evening, Colette's come down here for a reason, and Mike, mm. you can probably guess what that's all about. Oh, she probably wants to talk about the bloody NRFA conference. That's exactly what she's going to do. That's it. That's it. So we're not far yep. out now. We're at the pointy end of the business. Only a few weeks to go. Um, yep. So the NRFA conference with the theme of reforming our industry is in Shepparton on the 10th of February. Um, does, our, does our industry need reform, does it? Oh, just a little. Just a little. <laughs> Sorry, I just choked on my stubby when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I couldn't help it. You know, I'm here for just for comedy purposes. You yes, know, that's don't right. You? That's right. We know. We pay you well for that, don't we, Mike? Yeah, I do. We. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, um, on with the show. Um, yep. Yeah. So the NRFA conference, 10th of February in Shepparton. Um, we encourage as many industry people to come along. Um, it's going to be a jam-packed day. We've got um, quite a few panel sessions with some really major people on them, an industry and association and regulators. Um, I think we're the first association to be able to say we've got everybody in the one room at the one time on the one day. So um, it's an event certainly not to be missed. Um, tickets are available from www.nrfa.com.au. Um, if you've got any questions, you can give me a call 0493 564467 um, or you can email me at admin at nrfa.com.au um, Tickets are selling so we encourage you to get in quickly and book um, We need to have all bookings done and paid for by um, the 29th of January just for catering purposes so you know we need to cater for morning, afternoon, tea and lunch on the actual day of the conference um, and we'd really encourage you to stay on for the MOVE Museum Tour. We've got exclusive after-hours access to MOVE between our conference and dinner from 4.30 till 6.30. And then we've got our dinner, which is always a good event to wrap up the up the day. A um, bit more casual, but still you know, able to engage with people that you want to have a chat to. A few awards are handed out. Um, and we've got some really major sponsors on board. So our actual day conference is sponsored um, proudly by VDAC. We're extremely proud to be partnering up with them. Um, the dinner is proudly sponsored by NTI. The Move Museum exclusive access after hours is proudly sponsored by Hubfleet, and we have also have a major sponsor in Icepack. So we're right. excited to have all of them on board. We have got some other stallholders that will be there: the T TBI Insurance, NHVR, My Drive School. So they'll have a simulator there on the day. Um, so it's shaping up to be a really, really awesome event. It should be a two-day event rather than a one-day event with the sound of it. Well, we're starting to get to that point. We were sort of trying to squeeze everything into the agenda and it was like, wow, we're really going to be, people are just going to be pushed. I think the MC is going to have be kept on his toes a little bit. So <laughs> that's Craig. So he's got his his work cut out for him. And, of course, Yogi will be MC for the dinner. Um so we're really excited. We hope that everyone will jump on board or jump on the website and grab some tickets and make sure you you come along and support support some change and be informed and ask some questions and um, take the opportunity when you can. So who's bringing the box and gloves and the whistle? That'll be me. That'll be you? Yeah. 
She'll be standing in the background. I yeah. think I've got a security uniform on high. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I believe there's going to be a couple of panel sessions and there's going to be a few politicians, and I can just imagine yep. that it might get a little bit willing. It could very well. Our, our, our um, panel session with the politicians, we've got Senator Glenn Stirl, Pauline Hanson, Bridget McKenzie, which we do know there's not a lot of love lost between Senator Stirl and Bridget. Um, yeah. Sam make Bill. sure you sit them at opposite ends to each <laughs> yes. other. No, Actually, I must make that's... sure that I put them at their speak, opposite speaking ends on, on, because they're all giving, yeah. having a little bit of time to speak before the actual panel session, before right we sit eh? down. So they'll sit down on the panel in the order that they speak. So I'll make sure I put them at opposite ends of the... <laughs> that, that'd be my tip. That, that's the way I'd be playing that one. Yeah, yeah so um, oh, yeah. We, we are still yeah. waiting to hear from Matt Canavan. Yeah. I, I do hope there's no blood on the floor. Oh, we hope so too. It's not, that's oh, not our aim. Yeah. <laughs> hey, be right. there's nothing, nothing wrong with a bit of healthy debate, but, you know, in all honesty, Mike... Um, who would have thought that they'd argue? I don't know what, well, what the, what the know. concern's about. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, there are look. It's, it's going to be a, a a very very good conference, I think. I mean, obviously, I'm going to try and do my best to be there, but I don't know what I'm doing, so uh, I can't. You know, unfortunately. Well, amongst that, we um, you know, apart from the conference and a few truck shows and things on, we do have quite a busy schedule. We've got you know also within or oh, the end of February or March of there's another steering committee meeting and I think we've got two truck or one truck show in particular Karoit next but, week yeah so it is um, yeah pretty full on over the next couple of weeks so this time next week we'll be on the road heading to Karoit we will so, so we will um, we are actually having a break next Wednesday night I'll just inform you that Mike are we? Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, a well-deserved break, but we will be broadcasting on um, Friday, Stray Day. Stray Day. But why are we broadcasting on Australia Day? Because is it's it... our first birthday. It is. That's right, Mike. Yes. Do we get a present? If you're going to buy me one, we will. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> but anyway it's yeah so Australia Day but yeah next Wednesday we'll be yeah we'll be on the road so we'll have a break and travelling yep and Yogi will probably still be in his south coast depot so Mm. and then getting ready to head over We'll all be we'll all be travelling because we've also got the Mac Muster. On the, I think that's the twenty fourth of March, isn't it? It is twenty fourth of March. Someone's birthday at at Quarry Farm in Perth. Sunday the twenty fourth of March. Yeah, mm. the Mac Muster, Perth's premier truck show. We're going over the, over there for that, so we do have a bit of a busy time. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> so coming up. Yeah, but anyway, everyone. Um, yeah, please come along to the NRFA conference, and if you can't make it there, certainly support the people that support us. Uh, VDAC, Hubfleet, NTI, NTI, Icepack, Icepack, TBI, TBI, NHVR. Support the NHVR. My, my, get a ticket. <laughs> my, my school, <laughs> my drive school. Yeah. yeah. So no, it will be a big day. Um, I'm looking forward to it. So. Being the referee on the night or the day, <coughs> hopefully the night's a bit, um, a little bit freer, and <laughs> hope everyone 
brings a big fat wallet for the auction. Yeah, I've got some right. great, great items for the auction this year. So, so yeah. we, if you don't make it, Mike, can we have your proxy auction vote? Thing? <laughs> can you? Can you give us your credit card? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no problem, mate. Well, yeah. well, quite happily make a donation for you. Might need, might need to speak to Rose about that first, buddy. <laughs> Uh, yeah. No, it's, it's got to be a good night, and uh, as I say, I, I, I'm really hoping to be there. It's, it's been a lot of fun the last couple of years, and uh, a lot of great information, and uh, no, it's nice to meet and talk to people, put names to faces and, mm. and things yeah. like that. So that's probably the most important part of it. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know... We, we talk about, I mean, Rod, Rod says all the time about, you know, join an association, doesn't matter which one it is. Well, that's true. Join an association, doesn't matter which one it is. Um, do your part, because if, if you don't do your part, then, you know, the politicians, the people that actually make the decisions, unfortunately, don't know what don't know what they don't know and they'll do what they think's right rather than what we tell them's right. Well, that's yeah. right. So, and when they do yeah. come to events like this, they do understand that there's, yeah. there are there is actually an industry standing behind it. And, yeah. you know, when, when we go there and represent, you know, ourselves in front of parliament committees and things like that, if you're part of an association that, you know, has a couple of thousand members, well, then, you know, you're actually, you've got a bit of punch behind you in what you're saying because you're supported by all those people yeah um, but you know the, the people like have to help support like it, it costs a bit of money to go to these things um, and and most of the people well actually all of the people in RFA are volunteers in what they do so they travel around they take time out or holidays or time out of their own business to to go and represent the industry so it's just a little bit of support to help them do that would be great. And our membership yep. fee is not that high, $120 a year, $11 a month, um, if you want yep. to do m monthly or annual. Um, and you can join while you're there buying tickets for the conference. Mm. I used to spend more than that on potato cakes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Mike, see? Not anymore, though, eh? Not anymore. Just on hamburger patties. Hamburger patties. Mm. Yep. So, so my all right. Moving on what? from that, mate, have you got any other exciting news? You've been in the road today. and I'm going well, to love you and leave you. Thanks, Colette. Thanks for joining us. That's I, right. I, feel, I, I feel used. Do you? Sorry. It wasn't my intention. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll let I'll you just, get on with the show and talk I'm some industry being, stuff. I'm being sarcastic. I know. Mate. I know. <laughs> right, have a good I night. Love, I love you, mate. Oh, I love you too. Oh, isn't this so sweet? <laughs> Serious. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, dear, oh, dear. News, mate. I'll tell you what, I have never seen people driving around so stupidly as what I've seen the last two days, you know? Is it... It must be growing the talent, is it? <laughs> on. I came out of... Uh, came out of Melbourne last night out onto the ring road at, like, 6 o'clock at night, and I thought, oh, well, the traffic will mostly be gone by now. It should be good. Right. At six o'clock. Yeah, six o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. Past five, six o'clock, somewhere around there it was anyway. And and we, we drive down the road and we didn't get very far and here's a car wedged under the front of a stock crate. Yeah, right. So what's happened is we've we've got up the left hand side of this stock crate, we've made the stupid overtake and move. 
and got into the blind spot and then asking questions why the bloke driving a 90 can't see you while you're down beside the front wheel while you're in a little sedan. Mm. So I don't know whether the stock crate moved over on the guy and nailed him or whether the guy moved in and got nailed because he had to pull up. But there was a cube truck stopped in front and uh, the stock crate, they're all in the, they're, they're in lane number two. So I'm thinking that the car's moved in, thinking that he had room and found out he was wrong. Mm. Yeah. So there's that. Everyone needs space, uh, eh? Is that what they say? Trucks need, need space. That's right. Don't get in the blind spot. But, mm. I mean, that that was just that one. And then I, I'm driving up the Yume Highway on the way home this morning because I stopped at Iron Bark last night for a bit of a snooze. I was feeling a bit doughy, so I thought that was that was enough. I was actually going to go to Barnawatha mm. and pull up there, and I got to Iron Bark, and I thought, no, nah, can't be bothered. So I drove into, drove into Iron Bark and slept there. Coming up through Wodonga, where they've made that stupid little bloody turning circle arrangement at the, uh, I think it's a Liberty service station there, where they've got the ADK zone now on south of south of Wodonga oh, there. I don't think it's a Liberty, but I know the one you're talking about. Little Liberty? Is it, it's not a Liberty? Uh, United or something, a pie face one? Well, it might be, yeah, no, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. I'm always right. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> go on. Someone in a Volvo rigid has just, I don't know whether they've decided to drive up the turning lane and then just discovered, oh, shit, it's a turning lane, not an overtaking lane, mm. or or what they've done, but they've gone straight through, knocked over a couple of light poles, and this Volvo rigid and then driven through a tree, and the thing's there sitting in the middle, obviously, waiting to be recovered when I drove past. Yeah. On the way coming north. So that would have been a wild old ride. I'd love to hear the story. I'd love to hear the story of why that happened or how that happened. Mm. I really would. And of course, we come into Sydney, uh, and I've come up to Ingleburn to unload. And one car accident on the way, just between uh, between Pheasant's uh, Nest and and um, where you turn off to go to Denham Court. So there was only one. Went in and unloaded, and then on the way home, there's another one. Uh, on the on the on the bridge there, just north of Picton Road, in the rain, it was absolutely bucketing down. And so, the, the rain, know, I don't understand. The rain seems to, I don't know, cause people to drive in a more erratic fashion than when they do when they there's no rain. And you'd think people would understand that it's um, just the time to settle down a little bit and maybe well, maybe well, just follow the traffic and you know. What I don't understand, particularly when we come, when I was coming out of the ring road last night out of Melbourne, why why it is? I mean, I'm, I know I'm, I know there's nothing to do about it, and people can say, "Oh, well, you can whinge about it all you want," mm. but I just wonder why uh, the cars feel the need to duck in and out between all the the trucks and take these stupid risks. I mean, we're very easy to we're very 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 easy to kill. Mm. It doesn't take much, you know. And, of course, what I saw last night were the truck drivers who were then closing closing up and, you know, particularly once they got past the accident where the crate was, um, mm. go down into that dip into Pasco Vale Road and up the hill and under the bridge and, you know, heading out towards towards um, Greensboro and out to the Burn Bypass. And, of course, you're getting people that are... Travelling down the right-hand lane, which is where the 
where the, the traffic's travelling the best. Mm. And then at the last minute, in your B-double, <laughs> wanting to get all the way across to the left to go out to Craigieburn Bypass. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't just blame the car drivers for stupidity. Some of our colleagues are doing it too. Well, it does seem to be blessed across all, <laughs> which is a I, shame. But it is there, I, but it's sharing the road, isn't it? That's where yeah. you know where we need to be at. Like it's, everyone's got to understand that they're not more important than anyone else. So, just... of course, all the language and the swearing on the UHF, mm. um, and then someone decided to be good fun to play Indian music on the UHF. Mm. Isn't isn't that always you know? a blessing, hey? Like you know, you know. I know, I'm not saying it was an Indian doing it, but it was just someone decided to be a good idea to play Indian music. Well, I think anyone that on, plays on. music out of the UHF just starts to get a bit silly, doesn't it? We've all well, got stereos in our truck. If we want to listen to it, we'll put it on. What it is is that you guys, you've got guys trying to find out what's going on and what lane they should be in and trying to make the traffic flow a little bit better. And then you get some clown deciding that they can just ruin everything and just play music. Mm-hmm. You know? I just—I beg his belief that the the maturity level of some of the people that we've got to work with is so low. Yeah, it's a worry, yeah. isn't it? Um, I, I will say I, I um just changing the topic a little bit here. Well, not topic, but I was reading in a publication this week about the role of truck drivers, and you know. We all know we're losing drivers, and I think we're losing staff in every industry. But you know, there's some um, very big statements that come out about the transport industry, and I think one of the biggest ones is without trucks, Australia stops. Yeah. So it was, it was pub, one of the publications has put out a bit of a thing about the history of, of truck drivers and things in Australia, and you know the role of what we do and where we are and where we're going, and. Mm. You know, there's some very, very big statements in it. You know, like, you know, one, Australia is completely dependent on its transport network to keep the economy running with truck drivers at the face. Yep. And the next comment is everybody in the industry knows it. So that's good. Everyone in the industry knows it. But in the general scheme of things, that those people there's not a lot of those compared to the population of the country. Mm-hmm. So that means, you know, there's a fair few people in Australia that don't understand that. But it, it's it's interesting on how it goes on about how it affects our economy and, you know, the growth. But there's some interesting facts about the amount of businesses that are, are involved. So 51,000 businesses, mainly small mm-hmm. businesses, are, are involved in the transport industry. Fifty-three percent are non-employing owner drivers. So it's yep. half of the trucks you see on the road are yep. owner drivers. So that's yep. little mum and dad businesses just, you know, trying to carve their little bit out of the economy for themselves. Yep. So, you know, we all talk about our little corner stores that we had growing up, and they're all shut down or turned into takeaway stores and things like that. But you know, one of the things we have to get out there to the whole population is to understand that how how many people out there are actually dependent just for their own survival day to day on that business. But the bigger picture is is how you are dependent 
on those operators surviving. Because if we lose half of the transport industry because it's it's no good anymore and you can't compete, how does that then affect it? Like, so what happens when those trucks disappear? Is there going to be someone to drive it? Unlikely, because the only reason there's a bloke driving that truck now is because he owns it, and that suits him. He's he wants to be out there on his own. So, what happens then? Like, we all talk about stuff that happened through COVID. Toilet paper—that's yeah. a classic, isn't it? <laughs> the supply chain falling apart. So. If we lose half the trucks in Australia that are just owner drivers, and those people will leave the industry, they won't. They won't hang about. They'll. They'll go and do something else. Um, you a lot of them, yeah. Yep. They'll. Uh-huh. They'll uh-huh. find something else to do. If um, what happens then? We talk about our supply chains and supermarkets and things like that. Like at the moment, we're pretty lucky in Australia that you can still go in the supermarket and buy just about whatever you want. You, you hear people have a grizzle or some days because, you know, the apples they want aren't there because they're out of season or whatever. But imagine when all the other things are not on the shelf because there's no well, trucks running about. I, I, it's all pretty doom and gloom what you're saying. I'm not sure I agree with all of it, to be honest with you. Not trying to be doom and gloom in all of it, but just trying to get a message out there on how reliant the country is on transport. Well, we all know that. We all know. Well, we all know that the, the country is relying on transport, as you say. But I mean, the, the the way to the way to do anything about that is through education and educate the, the public what we do. Mm. The problem the problem that we've got with doing that is we have a group of bunch of associations with with you know very short arms and very long pockets. Mm. You know, when it comes to the education of the general public. Mm. You know, and, uh, you know, we've got a bunch of television uh, stations who are quite happy to run the truck smashes into car story. Yep. You know, we've got a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, particularly shows like A Current Affair and things like that, particularly when Mike Munro was doing it, more than happy to smash truck drivers in the trucking industry every opportunity they get. And then we and then we get situations that happen like that Terrible bus accident that was up at uh, up in Newcastle there recently in the Hunter, where all those people have sadly lost their lives, and they blame that on licensing. Mm. You know what? That's not licensing. That's attitude. That's right. That yeah. caused that accident. Yep. So we we end up with all this media and spin and stories, and we, you know, without putting too fine a point on them, the general public, the general public believe what what they see, mm. right? What they see on the mass ma- mass media. You know, that that's what they that's what they understand and what they believe. Mm. So, you know, and 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 the accident with the the, the level crossing at, at Bindara, which we're going to talk about tonight with Lara Jensen when we get her on shortly. Mm. I mean, you know, they believe what they see. Uh, we we don't really have a lot of influence over that. People like the ATA, for example, and their members uh, really should be the ones who are doing their best to promote uh, a, a better image for transport in the mainstream. But they just don't. 
uh, or what they do is you know, poorly directed, in my opinion. Well, I think it's something that where when all the associations can get together and then start mm. to provide a decent decent media campaign on on what the industry does provide. So, like you said, what I, what I was just talking about there it was a bit of doom and gloom. Mm. Now, if that you know, if that can get through in a way to help promote the industry, and I don't say on the doom and gloom side, I don't, I never really like to, to travel on that side of the fence. But, you know, if to help people understand the role of the industry and how what what it all means, like what's that, where's that truck going that you're frustrated with on the freeway? Um, all that sort of stuff. You know, the people that are out there doing it, they're actually providing jobs, you know, it all helps the economy all get well, around. If you even if you look back to Ted Stevens' book, the real, the, you know, the Razor back the real story. Yeah. In the forward that that Ted, that Ted wrote on in that, you know, he basically talks about telling people, you know, where everything comes from and how it got there. The, you know, the bricks for the building came yeah. by road. The seat that you're sitting on came by road. Everything came by road. And, you know, yes, there's a certain amount of stuff that goes by train, but it gets to the train by road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It gets away from the train by road. And this is the sort of thing that uh, needs to be highlighted and educated. Now, you know that, you know, ages ago, I had this idea about doing a television show from the, you know, from paddock to plate. Yeah. And following through. Uh, how how things happen from you know, different goes through the hands of different trucks and ends up doing what we're doing. Mm. Now I'll make uh, uh, Robert Pierre Domenico, the former football player, uh, got onto a very similar idea, and they've put together a TV program which should be coming out very very soon, mm. if it's not out already. Um, you know, with with trucking jobs all over the place, I know that they. Did some stuff with Lopez Brothers and and that here in Sydney. I know they did some stuff with with Campbells in the West with the with the Ultra Quads and all that sort of thing. So you know it's going to be a very interesting show, but it's going to turn up on Channel Seven Mate or something like that. Mm. And you know it's got an audience of people that are already converted. They're the same people that are watching Outback Truckers. That's right. Yeah. You know. They're the same people that are watching Heavy Haulers Australia and all that sort of thing, you know? Mm, so it's um, finding a way to market to a different audience, isn't it? About We've got to get out there. We've got to do some more. Mm. And, you know, we've got you and I have got some ideas on that and we're working on that, so it'll come. Yeah. But we probably should slip off to a song and get Lara on because we've looked for an hour to talk to us from Western Australia. Yeah. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what she's got to say. Righto. We might go with a... Um Bit of Brian Adams, maybe Brian it's Adams. actually Brian and Tina. Okay, one. so yeah, we'll um, bit of Brian. We'll be right back, everybody.
Righto, Mike, we're back. We're back. We've been, we've been gas bagging and gas bagging like a pair of old chooks in the back now. Maybe We would, like to, we would like to welcome to the show Lara Jensen. Now, Lara's from Western Australia, from some place that's unpronounceable in north of Perth somewhere. She'll she'll allude, she'll explain that in a minute. But she's the spokesperson for the Improved Train Lighting and Level Crossing Safety Lobby Group, which has been around for quite some time. Now, in light of the events that we've had uh Recently, with some level crossing incidents, we've had one at Geelong, we've had one at Bindara, and we've had you know, several others. Um, and Lara's got her own story to tell about level crossings, if she'd care to. Um, yes. we, we decided that we wanted to get someone on. Now, Lara's been working in this space for about 20 years, trying to uh, improve level crossing safety, and I think some of the things that she's got to say are pretty valuable. Now, I've tried to get in other several times. That's so great pleasure for me to welcome you to the show, Laura. How are you, mate? Oh, good. Oh, thank you sincerely, Mike, for the opportunity. And, um, and it's, yeah, it's really wonderful to talk to you um, as well. Obviously, yeah, our lobbying has, um, has been, uh, yeah, we've been lobbying for a long time and it's been, you know, it is quite a protracted issue. Um, it's been a fairly painful experience and, and very turbulent at times. Um, but we're still, we're still here and fighting harder than ever. Um, and, and if you like, I can share the story of my brother and his friends um, just to give your listeners an idea of, um, of, our, own, of our own personal tragedy, if, if you'd like me to. Okay, well, let's, let's start at the start. What happened there? Um, my brother, Christian Jensen, um, and his two friends, uh, Jess Broad and Hilary Smith, um, they were killed 23 years ago at an unlit crossing near Jenicabine in the WA Wheat Belt. Um, they were on their way to a 21st birthday party um, when they were struck and killed by a grain uh, train. It was loaded with 28 wagons um, and it was right on dark. It was a, a perfect storm of um, contributing factors um, involved in the accident. Um, he, and my brother, he wasn't um, speeding or under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Uh, he was a really experienced, careful and conscientious bush driver. Uh, we all grew up on a sheep station um, and he took the responsibility of having passengers on board extremely seriously. Um, but anyway, they were uh, at this crossing that was only protected by a giveaway sign. Um, they, were, they were hit um, right on dark. Um, and the crossing was also positioned at an obscure angle. Um, there were conflicting tractor lights adjacent to the unlit crossing. Um, spraying was taking place in nearby paddocks at the time, and the roadside vegetation on approach to the crossing was overgrown, um, and the signage at the crossing was not cons uh, con sorry, sufficiently conspicuous to warn motorists of the presence of a railway crossing. Um, that, they are the words of an independent consultant who gave evidence to uh, the coronial um, inquest. And, um, yeah, my brother's vehicle was pushed over a kilometre before the train could come to a complete stop. 
after the accident uh, the following morning there were trees um, cut down on approach to the crossing um, and then as you know as, as small country towns <laughs> the the, um, the news filtered through very quickly and then um, it was only within weeks we found out that another young man um, had lost his life at the exact same crossing just three years prior um, and the signage still hadn't been upgraded to a stop sign on the back of that fatality uh, so yeah four young people killed in um, in just four years um, and following on from the accident um, a year after WA State Coroner Alistair Hope uh, concluded in the inquest into their deaths uh, that the train was not lit with any form of alerting lights and that inadequate train lighting was a factor in the crash and resulting deaths. Um, this observation formed the basis of his recommendation uh, that all locomotives be fitted with external auxiliary lighting uh, in addition to ditch lighting to effectively warn motorists of oncoming trains um, and of course these recommendations were completely ignored by the rail industry. <laughs> so here we are still today, um, 23 years later, uh, with a savage old dog in this fight <laughs> and um, yeah, and we're going to do, we'll do our best to get these improvements across the line. We've done a hell of a lot of work, but we've got more to go. Well, every time this happens, it's another tragedy for another family. Now, I do want to clear one thing up right at the start while we're talking here. We're yes. not trying. We're not trying to compare or even lump into one basket the things that happened. The accident at Bindara, totally different to what happened with your brother. Totally Absolutely. different to what happened in Geelong. Yes. Um, and it just seems to me that the mainstream media like to sensationalise these things and draw them all together and lump yes. them into, their, into one basket. Each of these things is a unique accident with a unique set of, a, a unique set of issues and we're not going to solve all the problems here tonight. But the, the, the reality of it is is that you know, we've got people now like Pacific National who are coming out saying something needs to be done. Well, I, my personal belief is that Pacific National and people like them that operate the trains really should be the ones taking the lead. I can't understand why some of these crossings are so dangerous, particularly when you know, on major highways where you've got bigger and bigger vehicle combinations. That's correct. Um, you know, and, and these trains are getting along at night time. And, you, and I'm not, uh, and as I said, we're not talking about Bindaran when we talk about this, because that happened during the day. But, mm. you know, trains crossing the road on a major highway with all, where all there is is a, you know, a, a very limited signage or very limited lighting, and they've got no lights on the side of them. It's unreal. No. That's absolutely correct, and and I think, you know, when you when you draw the comparisons between, um, you know, you look at a semi trailer, there are about thirty six lights along the side of it, you know, so therefore it's completely unacceptable that a freight or passenger train that's between one point five and one point eight kilometres long has one or two <laughs> small headlights on it and often patchy or missing reflective strips, you know, and and this 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 constant excuse that the rail industry comes back with for not putting rotating beacons on locomotives roofs it's, it's just an argument that is null and void because they've got flashing beacons already in use on their rail track machines that are used for track maintenance on their personal vehicles that 
you know, carry their staff around and on their heavy transport vehicles. Like, Horizon runs a, a road transport service. So, you know, the current lighting practices on trains are completely inadequate to high-risk rail operations. And, and I, I do completely concur with you because people drew all sorts of conclusions after my brother's accident that were all completely false. And so I tend to like to just let the investigators do their, their job. And, you know, the, the Bindara one that hasn't had a forensic examination yet, like there's, you know, I, I believe that they, they've got a job to do and let them do it um, because drawing conclusions and particularly on social media is nothing but unhelpful, um, and not only to the, the families of loved ones, but just to the general public. It, it does no good whatsoever. Yes. Yeah, well, the driver of that uh, the driver of that truck in the Bindara accident has been now charged mm. with, two, with two counts of dangerous driving, occasioning death. I think. Yes. Yes, um, I did. Yeah. So, uh, to me, to me, that um, everyone's going to say, well, you know, that's an open and shut case. It's the driver's fault. Uh, look, whether it's the driver's fault or not. I said back in the time, it's very, very hard to judge how far these trains are away from you. Absolutely. Depending on the angle it's coming at you at and all that sort of thing. And I mean, people who don't drive trucks for a living don't realise how much it takes to stop a road train. No, that's right. You know, we're driving around in the traffic all the time and, you know, I drive... I've driven some of the biggest trucks on public road in the world. And, you know, they do handle and they do stop very well for what they are, but they don't stop on a five-cent piece. No. And, you know, even in a even in a truck in the traffic, you, you know, you have the experience, the heart-in-the-mouth experience where you stand on the brakes and you just don't know whether you're going to be able to stop or not. Sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. And, you know... I'm not trying to compare us to a train, but the train drivers can't stop. They can't, you know, they've got they've got a kilometre of train that weighs hundreds and hundreds of tonnes. That's right. And they can't swerve. They're they're on the tracks. That's it. They're basically uh, resigned to the fact that all they can do if they need to stop is basically throw the brakes on and just hope for the best. Yeah. And uh, that's about all they can do. You know, and, and I've been in the situation where, you know, you're coming up to a set of lights in a big truck and, and you know, you know, you're looking at what the lights are doing and you know when you get to the point, you pass the point of no return when you know you can't stop anymore, right? Yeah. Doesn't yeah. matter if you try and stop, you can't stop. So you're better off to just keep your foot into it and keep going and hope for the best. Yeah. And I And I firmly believe... Now, I haven't spoken to the driver that was involved in that thing at Bindar. I haven't, and I, and I don't intend to. Um, but would I speak to him? Absolutely. If he wanted to talk to me, I would. But, mm. you know, I, I know from experience that, and, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm only guessing, I'm only guessing, but I think that, you know, he made a mistake and uh, he, he looked over and he thought, oh, I can't stop now, I need to keep going. And But for the sake of a couple of seconds, he would have made it. Mm. Yeah, and, and that and that it's all about seconds and milliseconds. Sometimes the difference between life and death. Mm. Well, you know, we all know that the colour of adrenaline is brown. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and I mean, I you know, I would I would be the first to admit that I have had moments driving trucks and motorbikes and cars and 
and all that sort of thing. If you'd been driving for any length of time and you don't admit that you've had a circumstance where you thought you might have got it wrong and mm. had a lucky escape, if you can't admit that, you're lying. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You, you know, so there but for the grace of God go I as far as the, the level crossings go, I think. That, uh, so, that's right. And, and just, just to clarify too, this, this campaign has is, is about all road users. It's also about train drivers, the, the emergency responders first on the scene and the clean-up crews that have to deal with this accident. I mean, not yep. only did we lose three young people in our triple fatality, we were traumatised by what those train drivers had to deal with. They, yep. they obviously, not only did they see that accident unfold, they had to they had to confirm that they were deceased, then get in touch with emergency services, and they just sat there for half an hour after that accident, and and that was just horrific, you know. And and I don't think I don't believe anyone should <laughs> should have to sign up for that in their line of work. And no. and also just touching on Mike, you know, the circumstances you just alluded to as a truck driver. Well, a friend of mine, he timed going, you know, over a, in a road train, going from one stop sign over a level crossing to another on an obscure yep. angle. That's 34 seconds. 34 seconds is a very long time when you've got poor yep. line of sight or it's an acute angle and, and there is yep. a train coming. So I know exactly what you're talking about um, when it when it comes to that. And look, you know, I, I mean, and, and this is where our campaign is about improving train lighting, but it's also, you know, improving passive level safety crossing me measures with things like low cost um, solar powered options. You know, we've got the technology there. You know, <laughs> we can put a new heart in someone and fly a man to the moon. So we can we can we can fix this. You know, it's not it's not beyond the realms of you know the, the possible. Well, when when they're constructing new rail lines or doing rail work, there's the um, the safety side of that, you know, is is on the intense level. Um, mm. There's there's more people around with signals and whatever going on than you can poke a stick at, and and you see them now. They build new crossings or rehabilitate them, and they still don't build them to a safer standard where they've they've got lights or anything on them. No. That, that's right. Look, and I know even in our case, it was uh, 14 years following our the deaths of our three. Um, so, yeah, so it was 14 years after that that they actually installed, that was Main Roads WA, installed the flashing lights at a cost of around $400,000 at that particular crossing. And, and that's the other thing. It, it becomes a cost issue as well um, because, obviously, <laughs> you know, there's 491 of these crossings that are not protected by lights or boom gates or any controls apart from signage in WA alone so you know across the board that's exorbitant but i'm i'm saying that there are lower cost options that need to be carefully considered to get those notorious and risky crossings you know mm. well yeah we we do we do talk quite a bit about um road safety and and, and uh road behavior etc on this on this show and um you know, we've had our sponsorship with queensland rail uh, I've had three separate sponsorships from Queensland Rail in an effort to try and educate about level crossing safety and and things like that. I think that there are some people out there that are trying to get the message out that, uh, you know, to, to, to be careful. But the reality that you're pointing out and, uh, you know, the lobbying that you've been through, there have been two uh, national train lighting reports as far as I'm aware, yeah, that's um, correct. Yes, yeah. And 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 it's been, you know, there's been everyone's found that these things need to be improved, but no one's doing it. And and yet you you, you say, you know, there are 
400 odd crossings in WA alone. Well, we look around Australia, there's obviously many, many, many more than that. But the reality of it is, is that uh, the train business is a multi-billion dollar business. It's not, you know, it's not a milk bar on the corner. Mm. No, no. You know, know. sorry, I cut you off. No, no, that's 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 quite okay. And and look, I have I have had some involvement with the national level crossing safety strategy. Mm. Um, so obviously, you know, um, I was identified as someone who could provide valuable input into the impact of the of the strategy and work plan. Um, it's due to be rolled out over the next three years. The last one expired in two thousand and twenty. So <laughs> that, that gives you an idea of how long these things take. But my feedback was this: um, with in in regards to the strategy, it's all very well for the national level crossing safety strategy to have a vision of zero harm at Australia's level crossings and a commitment to a safe system approach. But as we know, like safe systems are nothing more than idyllic and vague and meaningless catchphrases given that rail operators aren't even made to safely light up their trains. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm just very tired of the, the bureaucratic lip service and, you know, we've been dealing with this for now. <laughs> you know, it's it's 24 years and it gets very exhausting because, you know, the, these are all pie-in-the-sky concepts. Of course there's a, there's a place for driver education. But, look, as you know, the rail industry has set up TrackSafe, you know, the harm prevention charity. Um, and, and they come out with, you know, these advertising campaigns that expect the unexpected and look out for trains. Well, I'll argue until, I'm, you know, I'm blue in the face that if I'm a motorist, I should have every opportunity to know that what, what is coming at me is a hazardous vehicle that's over length, oversized. You know, I shouldn't have to expect the unexpected. You know, if that hazard was properly illuminated, there would be no need for that kind of campaign. You know, mm. this is where it gets frustrating. It's like they're not listening to people like us who have lost loved ones um, to completely preventable tragedies, really. Um, and in our case, you know, one of the biggest contributing factors was inadequate train illumination. Mm. <clears throat> well, there's, so, it's, it's rolling stock, so there's, you know, you don't even have to have electrical connectors between each each vehicle, each carriage. There's, you know, the possibility of it, if it's rolling, that it's going to generate a little bit of power to illuminate the side or at least reflectors and... I don't. I know, I've certainly come across trains on a level crossing in the middle of the night, and luckily I was in a car, where at the last minute you saw it and had the ability to stop. But in the same situation, that that wouldn't have been. If I was in a truck, it wouldn't have been possible. No, and 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 I think this is it. You know, um, I, I think the, the the big problem we've got with AS seven five three one. Um, is that it is a minimum voluntary standard. And, and I guess in a nutshell, compliance with inadequate safety standards doesn't make an operation safe. And the problem with railways is they've got the power to control the standard, which is AS7531, the one that governs rolling stock and, and you know, uh, locomotive visibility. It's minimalist and voluntary, and it's completely inadequate for high-risk operations. Um, you know, and RISB is owned and controlled by rail operators, so they've got the commercial interests of rail operators front of mind, of course. But, you know, this we've had two redrafts of AS7531, of which all our families put in submissions, and now we've got an additional review coming up this year. Um, but these visibility beacons, they were included in the 2022 draft, and then they were deleted in the 2023 draft. So, you know, the emission of beacon lighting completely under pins at Risby's rejection of the overarching finding of the Mert report. Um, and that was the, the link I sent to you, um, Mike. There was the Mert yeah. report and 
the freight train visibility report. And the the overarching finding of the MERT report was that additional lighting on trains, specifically beacon lighting, does improve their visibility and that a beacon's light effect is significant when the level crossing is obtuse and when the road user is in close range to a level crossing. I mean, these are the exact circumstances of the tri triple fatality that claimed the lives of my brother and his friends in 2000 and 2000. So, you know, it's really difficult for our families to just have to keep, we keep pushing, but <laughs> the, the backlash is huge and, and it's not acceptable that, that we're still dealing with this from an industry that it's a multi-billion dollar industry and they, they need to put safety first. Mm. Mm. I think what a lot of people don't realise too is some of these level crossings are not even on public roads. Actually, no, like that's right. Between a farmer's paddocks. So yep. you might be venturing across that in, in a truck or a spray rig or a header or something like that. Um, and, and, and again, at night, if, um, if, that, if the loco has already gone through, there, there's no illumination there whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly. Part, well, the other part about it too is if you're in an area of farming at night time and the headers are working or, or they're doing whatever they're doing, there is a confusion of lights. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And distinguish yeah. distance as well. Um, and I know that that's what the train driver involved in our accident. He was good enough to come on to the ABC landline program in 2021, and he said that um, he believed Christian just mistook it for tractor lights in the paddock. And I have a I have a real problem <laughs> with something like a train being mistaken for a tractor in a paddock. I mean, you know, well, that should be clearly identifiable as that for, for the ha hazard that it is. You know, it, it really that. Um, well, yeah. it's it's not only it's not only what you, you're looking at the trains out the west in the wheat belt and all that sort of thing. I mean, uh, and you know, I'm not speaking for Queensland Rail here by any stretch of the imagination. So don't anyone think that, and I'm not having a go at them either. No. But if you look if, if you look around if you look around up in North Queensland, where all those little uh, light rail things are set up there, um, carting the sugar cane to the out of the from the cane fields into the processing plants. Mm. I mean, all those little crossings that cross uh, the, the the Bruce Highway and, mm. and other places with pretty much uncontrolled crossings um, in the middle of sometimes tall sugar cane, mm. you know. Yeah. yeah. Very, very oh, difficult to see at night time. Absolutely. Just a, it's, a, it's a very bad combination, and, and this is what, what we say, you know, it's, it's often a perfect storm of factors which contribute to these. So it's really simplistic just to blame the driver. And, and that's the bit that it hurts. Well, it stings every time there's an accident because I think just, just pull up here. <laughs> we know that yeah. there, you know, we know level crossing safety, it, it urgently needs attention, but we also know that it's complex. It, it's just well, not as simple pointing the finger, you know. One of the greatest issues that I particularly got with some of the level crossings is that the, the road geometry that you know, you're, you're encountering as a truck driver, the hazard might not necessarily be obvious until it's tracked you. That's it. That's right. You know, yeah. and I'm talking, I'm talking particularly about things like low loaders and floats and things like that. And yep. you know, without without you know without looking specifically at what happened in Geelong, because that's obviously a matter for for investigation. But I, I, I am aware that there have been several close calls on that particular crossing in similar circumstances. Yeah, and you know, and, and, and that's all about the road, the, the, the crossing, the road geometry. Yeah, now, yeah. You, you know, 
you, you would say, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, this bloke's a, you know, these blokes are experienced operators and they do heavy haulage and they should know about this stuff. Well, I, I don't think that they should have to know about that stuff. Why, why is it that the uh, rail operators seem to get a, a free pass all the time, Lara? I think, I think. Look, traditionally, there's, there's obviously there's there's a, a close association with government, and there has been protection afforded, a degree of protection afforded the rail industry that no other industry has been has been allowed ever. It, you know, inconceivable. And and I guess just to give you just give you a, 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 this is a classic case in point. So after our accident, Jess um, Jess's mum, Marilee Broad, she's one of my strongest co-campaigners. We work closely. We we attend all meetings with rail. Um, safety agencies together. She travelled to Canberra in 2003, and this was just three years after she lost Jess, to raise the issue of level crossing safety and in particular train conspicuity when she stood as a witness before the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Transport and Regional Services. And a report re- released by the Trans Committee, Transport Committee sorry, a year later recommended all locomotives should be fitted with rotating beacons to help make more them more visible and reduce level crossing accidents. But astonishingly, <laughs> the Australian Federal Government responded to these recommendations by stating they would not support moves to make rotating beacons compulsory without evidence that this would be worth the costs involved for the rail industry, which is astonishing considering the government would pass on any compliance cost of fitting rotating beacons to the rail industry anyway. That just gives you one example of how difficult it is to crack. And, I mean, not only that, we sat through um, lighting trials that the the WA state government set up at the crossing where we lost our three. Um, only two years after they were killed in 2002, that uh, that trial, <laughs> it had only one recommendation, and that recommendation was that drivers, motorists, be actively educated to scan for trains at level crossings. I mean, it was a complete farce and a complete setup, and that cost eighty thousand dollars at the time, and we have never recovered from that as families because they knew, <laughs> they knew they were going to do nothing with that with those findings, and um, yeah, and we lost three beautiful country people in the prime of their lives so i know all about the, the protection afforded the rail industry yeah i've just had a text message from a listener that says eastbound from pimpanio to horsham is a deadly spot to be confused by train and farm machinery even without mm. the complication of any level crossings on the main road mm. yes so, yes i could well imagine absolutely <clears throat> yep yep so yeah i've got no doubt that there are people out there that are listening to this who can think of probably one level crossing in their own area? We had we had um, Rob Free on the other night talking about the uh, level crossings down around the the uh, Horsham, Warrnambool, you know, Casterton area. Um, I used to run my business down there. I'm fully fully aware of some of the places that we were talking about there, and you know these issues. Uh, particularly with bad weather conditions like fog and stuff like that, you know, mm. lighting doesn't solve all the problems. No, but of course. Adequate signage and adequate warning probably would go a long way towards doing it. And certainly, you have know, got to ask questions when there are places on major highways uh, where we've got these really large trains with double stack containers crossing the highways. Why yep. we don't have rail overpasses built? Yeah, I don't, abs- I don't understand that at all. And I guess, so, and, uh, sorry, sorry, go on. No, go on. I guess it would come back to a cost issue, wouldn't it? That would be my first thought. Um, well, um, it shouldn't be, but I'd imagine that that's well, going to come back. Pacific National, I believe it's Pacific National. I hope I'm not verbaling them, 
but I know certainly some people from the uh, rail industry are saying, well, you know, there are all these bigger trucks on the road now, um, as if that's the driver's fault. Mm, you know, yeah. you know, they're talking about, you know, there are B triples running up and down here now. There are road trains. There are triple road trains. There are AB doubles running around all over the place. That's not yeah. the fault of the drivers. That's the fault of the companies that operate the equipment. And, yeah. no. you know, these level crossings, some of the level crossings, the controls haven't been reviewed for bloody 30, 40 years. Mm. Absolutely. That's got the added problem of, you know, interface agreements. And there's a lot of farmers out there that don't even know know what they are, you know, and that's mm. the reality. And I think just, just on the train lighting and, and, and visibility issue, we believe that it represents the best value for money um, that can be made to level cross safety fairly immediately. And we've we've done that. We've crunched the numbers. We estimate installing flashing beacon lights um, on all two thousand one hundred locomotives in Australia would cost around fifty five million. And by comparison, the feds, <laughs> that I mean, they're spending one hundred eight million, um, one hundred eighty sorry million on the regional level crossing safety program, which is not before time. Um, but this national level crossing safety strategy, it's it's taken over two years and it's still not finished yet. So uh, as we know, the, the wheels of government and bureaucracy turn slowly, but we're saying, look, even beacon light close range, we, we believe, we know side lighting can be done. There are solar options out there. It's just give, give, give the motorist out there every opportunity of seeing that train. And we also believe a combination of, as you say, the, the level crossing safety um, improvements, you know, be put in place as well. You know, there are, there are low cost, cost solar options definitely that are on the table. Well, the, we, we're more than happy to um, knock someone off telling a buddy that they said the truck trailers because they've got a, a, a side mark a lot out on their trailer. Um, you know, I uh, I could go on, I could get on that hobby horse if I really wanted to. Um, mm. I think I'll choose. I think I'll choose to avoid that one at the moment. But I mean, there are even there are lower cost options like reflective tape and things like that, and being made to keep the bloody carriages clean. Yeah, well, that this is the big thing. Oh, that, that maintenance. Yeah, you're right. You're spot on, Mike. Maintenance as part of AS seven five three one has never been strong enough. You know, it, it, yeah. that that's the thing. It's all very well, but what if they fall off? I mean, we've we've got footage of trains going through these crossings, and the the, yeah. the reflect patchy and, and quite often missing you know i mean and how how is it acceptable <laughs> that trucking operators in wa by law they need to be familiar with 1117 pages of federal australian design rules that clearly spell out the requirements for truck lighting in addition to 360 pages of the wa road traffic vehicle regulations that are mandatory and enforceable and the rail industry has a minimum and voluntary um standard in a7531 i mean i would love an answer <laughs> on that question because it's, it's just wrong it's wrong I haven't got an answer for you. No, I wish you did. No. <laughs> right. Right. Just have you, have you got an I look. I I don't understand it, and we you know we see the standards that we have to abide by in the transport industry. Where you know you do you you, you can get a, a bluey because you've got a couple of reflectors missing off a trailer, even though it's got plenty of other lighting on it. You, you could have you could have thirty LED lights down the side of a trailer. But one mm. missing reflector, and yeah, and, they, and you get a fine. <laughs> well, not, not always a fine, but you know, it's you know, you got to fix it. Whereas, mm. um, yeah, you can have a train going through a crossing, and, and I have experienced the ones through farms and that. And it, yeah, in instances that you know, I've been very lucky. It just has scared the daylights out of me, and hasn't been more serious than that. 
um, yeah. so that, why yeah. why it's not a standard that can't be easily implemented? Um, yeah, it's beyond. We uh, beyond just got another just got another text message that said all the money that was wasted on the boys could have fixed the rail crossing line. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, we, we, it, it's a, it's a, it's not a fair comparison, I suppose, but it's a truth, isn't it? The government seems to say we're more than happy to spend money on other things. Um, yes, I mean we've got we've got people living in Queensland at the moment with the roofs off their houses, but Penny Wong's giving them twenty one million for Gaza. I mean, yeah. I don't know. But why why can't the rail industry pay for it? Like you know, well, they're, they're out there competing with. Um, like this is a thing that they're out there virtually in, in competition with the road road freight industry. Yet there's no compliance level there. They can do whatever they no. want. They don't. That's right. That's right. Did have working lights. Who's going to monitor it to make sure they do actually work? This is the problem. We've got the power to control the standard, and we 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 will fight tooth and nail that these high risk industries should automatically have higher standards. That includes high use rolling stock that operate in poor visibility situations. You know, like your your night dust, fog, and they interact with mainline operations and cross high volume roads and and interact with the travelling public at unlit crossings. To me, it's time the rail industry stepped up. Instead of having to be pushed, dragging, and like it's it's like they have to be dragged, kicking and screaming to this. And and it it, it is because we've been involved at every opportunity where we can, whether it is with the Rail Industry Safety Standards Board, Australasian Centre for Rail Innovation. You know, we had amazing organisations like the Australian Trucking Association. You know, that represents fifty nine thousand trucking businesses and over two hundred thousand individuals in in Australia. They put in a submission to RISBI, the Rail Industry Safety standards board that to have you know the beacon lighting and they were ignored and so now we go back to an additional review another one this year it's like testing and trials are just an excuse to do nothing or propose yet more research we've seen it on countless occasions and we're getting very tired of it so you know this is where the media comes in it's not fair it's unacceptable that a high-risk industry like the rail industry is able to get away with it you know these standards should be legislated mandatory and enforced Mm. You, you've had a. You, I've, I'm just having a bit of a scroll through some of the stuff that you sent me here, Lara. Mm. And we're, we're looking at um, the Monash. Um, I'm looking at the Monash report, the overview of that. Mm. Um, in October 2021, the online, uh, the, the National Rail Safety Regulator commissioned the Ops, uh, Australasian Centre for Rail Innovation to conduct a review of the current research. Yes. Um, 30 potential controls for improving train visibility at level crossings with a majority focusing on better illumination for the trains. Is that sort of thing going anywhere? I mean, what happens with that? You're talking... This is the thing, Mike. You know, it, it is that, that is the rail industry's own research, and and not only that, it was Monash and it was the Australasian Centre for Rail Innovation Freight Train Visibility Review. That was a consequence of of lobbying and with um, Federal Transport Minister Barnaby Joyce when he was in power back in 2021. He was the one. Um, he directed the Office of the Rail Safety National Regulator to commission um, the firstly the ACRI review, and then secondly the Monash one followed on from that. So the the, the thing we were so 
angry about was with this last Risby redraft of AS7531 that beacon lighting, locomotive lighting and wagon lighting was still emitted from that. And yet it was the beacon lighting specifically was the overarching finding of the, the Monash report, um, you know, which said it's the, the, um, it was that additional lighting on trains, specifically additional beacon lighting, does improve their vis- visibility and that a beacon's light effect is significant at close range to a level crossing. So, you know, you just want to pull your hair out because it's like th- this is the rail industry's own research and yet it appears that they're al- allowed to ignore it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how more speci- you know, much more specific you can get and I don't know why they need to do more trials with um, Monash, but that's what's happening. They're saying to us, Risby in their latest release that just came out um, today, that, that they are doing more testing and trials, you know, that they, they want to proof it up. Well, anyone can tell you that if you put more lights on, on something, it's more visible. You know, it just, it beggars belief, to be honest. So where where, where are you at now, right now? Where, where's, the, where's the discussion sitting now? Okay, so Risby have heard all about it. <laughs> um, obviously, I've, I've had extensive contact with the media um, following the latest release, and then yeah. we all get to put in submissions again. Um, for, well, uh, they'll, they'll put a call out for public submissions again. But this will be the third one in three years. And so... <laughs> There becomes this fatigue element of it. So I'm hoping that all the organisations, we've got over 20 organisations now supporting us, and that that includes, you know, your trucking um, organisations like the Australian Trucking, um, sorry, Trucking Association, um, the Livestock Rural Transporters Association, um, they're all behind us, as well as the Transport Workers Union in WA and, you know, um, Engineers Australia put in a submission, so did the um, Australasian College of Road Safety. They all put in submissions back what we're saying about improved train illumination so so I guess we will gonna ha- we're gonna have to do this again but I'll, I'll be right I'll be there right till the end when you know they make that announcement they're saying it's on the table but it better be you know what more do we have to do to prove that improved illumination does save lives I'm not saying it's a silver bullet to everything it's not the silver bullet solution um, but it does it goes a long way to making these trains and rolling stock more visible so we have to fight tooth and nail for that um, I've also had a um, um, meeting with the um, the regulator, the new CEO um, of the um, Office of the National Rail Safety Regulator. Um, they obviously have a big responsibility um, in this, so um, we try and have a dialogue there wherever possible um, because that, that is the job of a regulator, that they need to enforce this and make sure rail operators are stepping up. Mm. Now, I've, got, I've just been looking at the letter from uh, TWU in WA um, to Carly Wilson. Uh, supporting what you've what you've had to say, uh, have the TWU really done very much to help you with this, or are they sort of just oh, sort no, of coasting along? They no, they have they have been good. Um, I I met um, Tim Dawson, the state uh, sorry branch secretary, um, back at a I spoke at a um, at a it was a it was just a it was a like a livestock rural transporters association um, their annual. Um, their national conference so i met him there and he has he has been supportive um and it was it was fantastic he put a submission in um obviously we'd like to get all the other states on on board but um uh, you know the australian rail tram and bus union is a different kettle of fish obviously and we're not we we, we just want to make it clear too we're not wanting to make another hazard for a train divers you know the, the flashing beacons we want them positioned in such a place that they're not a distraction we're, we're not wanting to cause another drama for for you know train divers but we're saying look 
I- I- anyone who's doing a you know a heavy vehicle escort, they you have to have a flashing beacon not only on your escorts, <laughs> as you guys know, but on your trucks as well. So it can be done in such a way that it doesn't interfere. And you may be aware that um, CDH Corporate Bulk Handling they have done they're putting installing brow um, beacon lighting on their trains. The, the only problem with them is that it is a manual activation, so it's only when the the train horn is sounded um, manually by the train driver that those lights are activated on approach to a level crossing. So we do have concerns with that. And, and I would argue that those lights should be on at all times on the rail network so that from a distance you know that that train is coming. I, I just believe it's the least that they can do, you know. And then it, it really, it's just, it's not that hard. Yeah. Well, the Country Women's Association, the WA, have been at it since 1950. Yeah, they're amazing, amazing bunch of ladies. And I've spoke at their state conference for the last two years running. Um, they're yeah. incredibly supportive and, and they know exactly, you know, they know exactly what we're up against because the resistance is, is being huge. Um, and, and, you know, they've lost lost members, family members. They know exactly what we're what we're on about, but they also know how difficult it is to, to break in um, and, and, you know, and get the wheels moving on it. Mm. If you could have... Of rolling stock, you would think that a, a beacon on it is is a minimal, like yeah, very very yeah. minimal cost. So it's it's hard to fathom why these things can't get a bit of traction. I, I don't. Well, no one cares about the cost of the trucking industry when they say you will fit up bars to your trucks. Yeah. Yes. Yep. No. No, no one. No one cares about that. No. Yeah. No, no one cares when they say. You know, you you must you know have two straps for every bloody pallet space. You must do this. You must do that. We've got all this stuff we must do. Um, you know, we must try and keep our vehicles roadworthy on some of the worst bits of road in the country. Um, I don't think it's out of line to say to the rail industry, well, you must do this. No, me neither. And and I would argue they haven't spent a, a cent on safety lighting in decades. So time's up. I mean, the, those um, uh, ditch lights, you know, that they are there to light up the ditch, and and that's the only improvement in several decades that the rail industry has actually <laughs> willingly done. And you know, unfortunately, it's not enough for a motorist on approach to a crossing, particularly when you've got overgrown vegetation and things like that. I mean, everything points and illumination, common sense, research, coronial recommendations, science and engineering. Um, you know, the 20 years, if it, well, more than 20 years, but rail operators have always resisted without explanation. So time's up, you know. Let's have this dialogue. I'm not afraid to speak to anyone in the rail industry. You know, they know who I am. I'm not going anywhere. We want something done and we want our the, the lives of our lost loved ones to be honoured by permanent safety improvements that everyone benefits from. It's too late for our families, but it's not too late for someone else's and and to me it's just it, it beggars belief that we are fighting for this when any good corporate citizen would put up their hand and say look there's a problem here it's been highlighted by it. not only transport safety investigators but now three state coroners um on separate instances and they would do the right thing you know they should not have to be pushed into this we should not have to be fighting this you know i mean i, <laughs> I live on a cattle station i've got four little kids my youngest is eight months old you know, but I'm my hat's in the ring, and it's going to be there until something happens. And they they do this that they <laughs> they honour our loved ones with the safety improvements that should have been there decades ago. Mm. You know. Well, you, you, I, I'd hate to be up against you, mate. You, you, you you've certainly <laughs> got the bit between your teeth. And, uh, oh, thank you. Yeah, oh, it's just I, you know. 
I don't mean that. In a, I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I, I, like some of this, it takes people like yourself with with passion, and and the willingness to sink their teeth into it and and, and just keep shaking it. You're, you're a little bit like a terrier with a butt. Not to get the mate. <laughs> well, I, I admire yeah. anyone that does it. It's it is it, it's very time consuming and it's actually probably mm. financially consuming as well to, yeah. to take on these yeah. battles and. Sadly, it's normally against something that's, yeah, you know, like the rail industry. That it's not like they don't have any money. So, no. <laughs> why does it take so much to implement such a simple thing? And you know, like in in the road freight industry, and or or, or just say generally in roads, we've got, you know, um, things like the green reflector program that Rod Hannafy's started. You know, trying to raise money from government to do that, it seems like it's nearly impossible to raise bugger or money to do something. Yet, mm-hmm. again, they could spend money everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> what, can we, what can we say? Yeah. Well, I'd say to you, Lara, if you could... Well, what's the next thing that's coming up? Where are you expecting to be able to um, kick a goal here in the future? Right. Well, the the next one we've got um, a, a meeting about the national level crossing safety strategy next week. So I'll, I'm going to be on that one. We're having meetings with the regulator that are ongoing, um, and then also with RISB. Um, they know we're not going anywhere, but we can't we can't get anything done if we're not part of this process. And as much as I I would prefer not to have to deal with some of these agencies, and, and like you say, we couldn't have picked a more profitable, powerful opponent than the rail industry. But they need to know that they do have a duty of Care. They know things that can be done, you know, can be done better. We fought for those two national train lighting reports, and so we're going to make damn sure that they deliver on the ground what they were supposed to, what they were designed for. Otherwise, it's just a waste of time and every, you know, and money. And you know, and I hate to think of what the price tag was not only on that Australasian Centre for Rail Innovation Freight Train Visibility report, but that Monash report. You know, I hate to think of what they cost. They've got findings that say <laughs> train lighting can be improved. We're going to hold them to that. Um, and we are not afraid to have discussions with any anyone involved in rail, any operator, um, and anyone involved, any of the agencies involved with rail safety. So that's that's basically where we're at. It is ongoing. Um, we've been incredibly lucky to have the the services of um, the independent road and rail researcher, Dr. Brett Hughes. Um, he's been on board for the last two years, um, two plus years, and he's not going anywhere either. He, he's a fantastic asset. Um, he's got all the facts, and he's an, a qualified engineer. Um, so Brett's been amazing. And, and actually, at some point, if you're interested in having him on your show, he, he really knows his stuff. Um, he, he's been amazing. And, and, you know, on the back of the calls for this specific national summit, we don't need another summit. We know what needs to be done. We, we just need to get on and do it now. I mean, I, I just I feel sick every time there's a, a level crossing crash. And, and I know it's not going to be the last one, but we know how to fix this problem. Let's just do it, you know. Mm. All right. So when you say the regulator, um, there's been a, a, like a trucking show that, Everyone immediately thinks the National Heavy Vehicle Regulator. That's not who we're talking about. Who's the regulator and who's Rigby? Okay, so the RISB is uh, the Rail Industry Safety and Standards Board. They are owned and controlled by rail operators. Um, so therein lies the problem um, with this particular standard on train illumination, that they, they have the power to control the standard. Um, it's not independent. So um, so that's why there's this resistance. The Office of the National Rail Safety Regulator um, is the, the rail regulator, uh, and we have been dealing with them. 
But, you know, they they have fairly strong directives under the Rail Safety National Law, um, which came around in 2015, which states that they must facilitate the safe operations of rail transport in Australia, B, exhibit independence, rigour and excellence in carrying out its regulatory functions, and C, promote safety and safety improvements as a fundamental objective in the delivery of rail transport in Australia. We are saying... The, the, the regulator has not been doing enough and we want them to step up to the plate and enforce this because that is the job of a regulator. You know, it should not be the job of the, the families of, you know, you know, deceased rail crash victims, but it, it's become like that. You know, we are a passionate, feisty group of individuals and there's 12 families uh, united around Australia now uh, that are all, that are all, um, <laughs> we're all having our say. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know whether you remember the Gerogery accident, the terrible um, fatality where five boys were killed, um, teenage men, in um, 2001, just a year after our, our three were killed. Yeah, well, that, that, that particular, yeah, that particular crossing was one of the most notorious in New South Wales. It had had crashes, but not, had not claimed one life until all five boys were killed in one hit. So the father of Kyle Wooden Barry Wooden is part of our team. Um, he's a he's a fantastic man and a formidable force. But they went through the same things to get that overpass there, the, the five mates crossing, and the the coroner involved in that um, inquest, uh, Coroner Milanovic, he categorically rejected any suggestion that they were racing the train. But this is what happens on so many occasions. People jump to conclusions. They think you know the motorist is young. You know, <laughs> it's not, it wasn't the case at all. Those boys were cleared of that. You know, but what a what a terrible legacy and. and this is so often the case that there's these 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 close calls, these near misses, and then there's a fatality, and then there's a knee-jerk reaction by government to do something. It's like, come on, you know there's a problem there. Step up. <laughs> yeah. And they still can't make him just put a few lights on them. No, that's so, right. You know, the most basic safety improvement of all. I mean, look at aviation, mining, construction. You know, you'd get shut down. Your own trucking business would get shut down if you tried to pull that off. Yet it's somehow acceptable for the rail industry to get away with it. It's it's just not, you know. <laughs> not on my watch. Where, anyway. where, where is this regulator based? Who's in control of it? Um, there is a new um, CEO who's recently come on board. Her name is Natalie Pelham, um, and she's recently joined. Um, so she, she did kindly um, offer to meet with us, um, and that was in December. So we've, we've had a um, brief chat with her. Um, and so they're, they're actually working on a, uh, a code of um, practice at the moment for train illumination, which is another one of the things that have come out of our lobbying. I still feel oh, it's not enough and I feel like it needs to be mandatory legislation um, because, as we know, codes of practice are quite often not worth the paper that they're written on. Um, so, you know, we're hoping this, this is not just going to be another whitewash, basically, um, and that it's strong enough to, to actually... Um, yeah, impose a few strict guidelines on them when it comes to to train lighting. So there's there's so much happening in the space, but you know we'll we'll talk to anyone about it. And um and you know unfortunately it was good she she did agree to meet with us and and she knows we're we're very we're very passionate about this issue. So does this regulator actually have any teeth? Can they can they bite the rail operators? Yeah, look, I believe uh, you don't hear it very often, but they, they do issue fines um, occasionally. It's not often, and I, I only know of a couple um, that, that I've heard of. Um, but they have been very frustrating to deal with. They generate enormous amounts of revenue, and, and we just know from our experience with the, the train lighting issue, you know, that they come back with things like, oh, you know, 
they're, they're operating as safe as reasonably practicable. They're not. We know that rail operators are not operating as safe as reasonably practical because look at the te technological developments that have happened in recent years with solar, all the, the sorts of things. They're not operating as safely as reasonably practicable and I, I, that is not a direct quote from Natalie Pelham. That would be unfair to do that. But we have had that from them in the past when we've written letters to them. So th they know that there is an issue and they also say on their website that um, level crossings are, pose one of the greatest risks to the general public, travelling public. So there you go. It's like, <laughs> you know that there's a problem. So, <laughs> you know, in, enforce it on your your operators to actually do something about their, their train illumination. You know, that's, yeah, it's, 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 it's frustrating. And, yeah, it's just hard because, as you know, that's not only we're not the only ones that we're dealing with there's, there's RISBY as well um, as the regulator but they know how we feel about this and, and I send any media articles and, and whatnot onto them as well um, so that's a big thing, you know, we're not going to win this war without the support of the media, there is no way Alright, well I, under, I know that uh, I know that Cam Dunphy in Western Australia the Western Roads Federation CEO is a big supporter of yours oh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> you're the best dressed man in transport, you know that don't you? <laughs> yeah, oh no, he's been fantastic as of all the other road transport organisations that have come on board, you know to get 20 national organisations including the NFF supporting us it's, it's just been, it's been really wonderful and it's helping get us over the line because, you know, as you know <laughs> advocacy of any sort, there's a lot of long hours and, and you know, and I'll do it all over again tomorrow, it's, it's not that, you don't expect but, yeah, we just want to stop this happening from, you know, to any other family. These are completely preventable tragedies we're talking about here, you know. It's just it's just a no-brainer that, that um, trains and rolling stock need need proper illumination. Mm. All right, well, it's, it's uh, been great to have you on with the show to, to talk with us and we wish you all the best with your, with your project. Thank and, you very uh, much. You know, if you feel as though that uh, anything that's happened or you'd like to share with our listeners, please let me know and, and we're more than happy to get you back on again if there's any developments. And where can Thanks. our listeners go to find out more about what's happening or perhaps who can they write a letter of support? Where, where should they direct that if they wanted to do it? Oh, fantastic. Well, we do have a Facebook um, group, which is called Improved Train Lighting and Level Crossing Safety. Um, they can make contact with us through that if they like, or, mm. you know, they contact myself. I mean, really, at the moment, we've we've got to wait now until the next pu public consultation round with RISBY. It's always a great thing to <laughs> to email, um, you know, the likes of Federal Transport Minister Catherine King. Um, Rita Safiotti knows me pretty well over here. <laughs> I'm pretty good at drafting letters to her. We have had a meeting with Catherine King as well. So so I, I think, you know, you go straight to the top. The, the thing with um, the Rail Safety National Law is that it is, um, it is administered through the state. So, so right to their state um, transport minister, I, I reckon that would be a great way to go about it. But if, if they want to, if anyone wants to make contact, I'm more than happy to help. I mean, we really we get so much um, support from the general public, and we've got you know over a thousand one hundred members on that group now. Um, and you know, it's it's just it's a great way to spread awareness, and and it's been a, a really big help. So um, yeah, no, they're just some of the ways. That I, yeah, that um, people can help if they'd like to. No worries. Well, thanks for thanks for joining us, Lara. We do appreciate your time and, and oh, thank uh, you, Morgan. You both been great, and and I do get very fired up. So I really appreciate you. Um, I never <laughs> you would have guessed. 
<laughs> yeah, but um, it's yeah, very much appreciated, and um, and you know, and and thank you because we can't do that without the awareness of, of what what this issue is about and how protracted um our fight has been. So thank you both very much, and I hope you have a lovely evening. Thank you. Thanks for Stay in touch, mate. Oh, definitely will. <laughs> Thanks. Right I'm on. sure there's Catch a up. lot more to come. <laughs> thank okay. you very much. Thank you, Lara. Good night. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, there, there you go. go. Yeah, Mike, it's, um, Mark it's, it's funny, isn't it, that, I shouldn't say funny, but, you know, these same things happen in, in every industry that why is the simplest thing the hardest thing to fix? Yeah, I, I don't understand it. It's, as Lara said, it's a bit of a no-brainer. Few, uh, a few beacon lights on trains. Mm. I mean, it's not going to stop everything from happening, but surely to God, it'd have to stop a couple of things, you know. Well, um, you've got to start somewhere, don't you? And and there are so, so many of these level crossings that that don't have lights on them that yeah. you, you cannot, you just plainly cannot see a train. Well, if it's already on the crossing well, and you're approaching it, you just cannot see it. I know that uh, you know. For those of you who have driven the northern the northern road uh, between uh, Oski and and Port Hedland, there's a train crossing there at the bottom of the Chittering Range which uh, the big ore trains and everything go across. Um, it's got uh, warning lighting back for a couple of kilometres in front of it. There's an agreement with the transport companies. It's all geo-fenced out on the MT data. Uh, we've got set speed limits that are involved in it. There's an audible uh, UHF um, warning on Channel 40 there to let the truckies know that there's a a train on the way to the crossing. It's all automated. Now, I don't know how much it costs to set that up, but someone must have just done a cost-benefit analysis and decided it's better if an ultra-quad doesn't smack into the side of a train. Well, that would... You know? Yeah. Shouldn't so, have too much of a study to understand that that's, that's a thing. You know, so uh, surely to God, there's a circumstance somewhere where we should be working out that it's better if it doesn't happen at all, and we need to expand, extend that sort of safety measures to level crossings on places on, you know, the the main highways in the country where there are very very large combinations running up and down. That's mm. um, probably best if they don't smack into a train or a train doesn't smack into them. That's yeah. And I think the likes of Pacific National need to pull their head out of their ass. <laughs> and take responsibility for what they've got an equal part of the problem on. That's right. Definitely true. Definitely true. There you go. There you go. Well, mate, we might get this on. I think we should. Okay. And then we'll come back to wrap the show up. Right, eh? a bit of Toby Keith, eh? Why not? This should be your song, wouldn't it, Mike? I want to talk about me. <laughs> Behave. <laughs> right, eh? We'll be right now. <laughs>
But every once in a while I wanna talk about me Wanna talk about I Wanna talk about number one Oh my, me, my What I think, what I like What I know, what I want, what I see Talk about me. About your dreams and we talk about your schemes, your high school team and your moisturizer cream. We talk about your nana up in Muncie, Indiana. We talk about your grandma down in Alabama. We talk about you guys of every shape and size. I want you to despise and I want you idolize. We talk about your heart, about your brains and your smarts and your medical charts and when you start. Now you know talking about you makes me grin. But ever now and then, I wanna talk about me, wanna talk about I. Welcome back. And just to remind everyone, our show tonight's brought to you by Renko, yeah. sponsors of Truck and Lives Renko Rig of the Month. You know, Get your high gear yeah. from Renko. Need a bit of extra gear? Need some extra gear? Rent- when you've had an unexpected <laughs> upside down or <laughs> break down or oh, whatever it is. <laughs> upside down, Miss Jane. Yeah. <laughs> Those, those situations that just aren't pretty. No, when you need to replace some equipment or get some equipment to help you fill out the extra bit of work, go to Renko, tell them we sent you. Mm. No, no. Okay. Not sure to get you any sort of a discount, but it'll it'll let them know that we're talking about them. That's right, yeah, at least give them that. So, right. Right. Yeah. so, the, so the last... Sorry, go on. Yeah, you, know, you go on, because you're probably going to... I was going to say, the last 25 minutes of the show, we're just going to cover a little bit of trucking news mm. and uh, mate I, I just sent you an email there a little while ago the NHPR have revealed the outcome of operations forager mm. don't they, where do they dig up these names for these operations that they do don't know but it's the one that's a little bit yeah I don't know just not quite the right word I don't think but anyway they've conducted it across November yeah. and December New they South did Wales, running Queensland, Victoria, SA, and the ACT, oh, and Tasmania. And Tasmania. On everywhere. The, regular, the regulator aimed to crack down on fatigue and on-road compliance across the holiday season. 
because that's what we need. We need another crackdown, don't we? Well, no, but they did. They did. Okay, 5,350 heavy vehicle intercepts they conducted. How many? 5,350. Mm. Chief Operations Officer Paul Zalvati said the NHVR felt the operation was a success at managing fatigue-related offences throughout the month. Mm. Right. No, I don't know. I don't know. So, work diary and fatigue-related education. So I hope this mm. was education. Well, that's what they—that's what they say they yeah. want to do these days. They want to do education rather than enforcement. Yeah, and I think if they uh, follow that path, I think it's a great thing. Um, I—I I would like to be able to elaborate more with them on on what fatigue education is. So, uh, <laughs> you'll always hear me speak of this—that managing a work diary and managing fatigue are two different things, and. It's something mm. that once once the industry and the the um, lawmakers and the regulators get get that in their head, we will be much better off. But so if they are giving fatigue um, education in mm. six hundred and twenty three of these intercepts, um, I, I would assume that that's uh, information on how to manage your work diary. I'd say. Not managing. I'd say it's with I'd say I'd say that talking about managing the work diary. Yeah. So I mean, if if they're there telling people that you shouldn't really eat turkey for dinner just before you head off on a on a <laughs> on a on your evening trip because turkey does actually have you know components of it that actually will make you go sleep. Is that why is that why I end up with, after I've had turkey sort of sitting on the lounge with me? hand down my pants, snoring with my mouth open. Is that why that happens? No, that's just your Homer Simpson stuff, I think, mate. <laughs> um, but there is. You know, oh. there, are, there are foods that actually do make you sleepy. So, is there? Yeah. But, so, I, I, I like this, the rhetoric, like education. I think it's great. But when we yeah. talk about um, educating people on fatigue, it goes far further than showing you how to use your diary correctly. But, Right. Well, anyway. let's let's just let's just break it down a little bit. They did. What do we say? Five thousand. Uh, where's the number? I can't. Tell. It was five thousand intercepts. Three hundred and fifty. Five thousand three hundred and fifty intercepts. Two hundred and seven of those resulted in fatigue relation, uh, fatigue related compliance action, and one hundred and twenty nine of those two hundred and seven offences were drivers exceeding their allowable work hours or not taking adequate periods of rest. So what they're saying to you, if you read the numbers, that absolutely more than 98% of the operators mm. are doing exactly what they should be doing. Mm. So I would say that we're being fairly well compliant, aren't we? I'd say the industry's doing a pretty good job. and So would I. You know, 129 offences exceeding allowable work hours, and uh, you well, know, I'd imagine if, much was, if there were 623 um, of those were, you know, needing of a bit, bit more help to fill your diary out correctly, then 129 offences, you know, is probably a fairly minimal amount. <laughs> I just got a text from someone. Mm -hmm. who shall remain nameless, mm -hmm. 
And he said there should be education on how to rack it up and not spill any. Wow. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know I if you should be in that For those days, I wasn't I think that. I think that. No, I think it's set in. I think that's set in jest, I think. Mm. At least I hope so. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. But there is some uh, stuff here, like, you know, investing significant time and effort in educating heavy vehicle drivers on work diaries and fatigue. So they actually s- to put them separately there. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, especially new drivers. So, you know, I've I've had an experience, well, quite a few experiences where, um, you know, we're, we're putting moving people over onto electronic work diaries. And yeah. you know, I, I don't want to hear about the love and hate of these things, or, you know. Um, they they have great benefits for people and particularly people that are learning in the industry because I've had people operating on BFM that once they went to electronic work diary, they actually believed what they were doing prior to that was correct. Yeah. And once they got into worked electronic diary, they're ringing me saying, "What's going? This thing's not working properly. I can't do this." Yeah. <laughs> We've never been able to do that. Yeah. And. So, you know, and in some of those situations, they're probably just been lucky that they never got a blister out of it. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? I found that um, when I changed from the paper diary to the electric diary, electronic diary, yeah, um, it was a struggle when I first changed because mm-hmm. I, I discovered that, you know, and I, and, and I, I mean, I'll freely admit it, I used to colour outside the lines a little bit, mm. you know, do what some people call taking the piss, mm. you know, um, you know, drive that extra 15 minutes to get to the rest area that I wanted to be in or go to the rest, rest, the, the, the truck stop that I wanted to go to, yeah. you know, and, and basically just winging it, you know. Mm. Um, the, difference, the difference between, uh, you know, and I, I, I haven't had a, I, I can't remember the last time I got a logbook fine and it wasn't because I didn't, it wasn't because I didn't um, bend the rules. It was because I knew how to manage a work diary. That's right, yeah. And, and that's the difference. And uh, I think that, you know, now I've got used to managing with an electric electronic work diary and understanding exactly what that does. I actually save time now. Um, that's, that's, fairly, that's a fairly common response after people have been on it for a while. Um, yeah. I mean, there are different ones, and you know, Hubfleet is a sponsor of ours with um, with, with Truck and Life. Um, mm-hmm. They're a great, great um, contributor to the National Road Freighters Association. I personally use their diary. I like it. It's yeah. easy to use, um, you know. But if you're going to break the rules, no matter what you use, you, yeah. Well, I've, you're open. I've trialled the Hubfleet one. I've trialled the Safey. Yep. Um, I've used um, I've used MT Data. I've used Sentinel. Yep. Um, and, and a couple of others. And it does, as you say, it doesn't matter which one you use. I've, I've tried out. I've tried a lot of them because people have sent them to me and said, "There you go. Make up a go of that and see what you think." Mm. The, the only difference, really, between any of between them all is finding one with an interface that you like and you're comfortable with. That's it. Yeah. You know. So really, I mean, they're all operating with the same set of rules. Mm. What's going on in the background is all the same. You know, you've got to comply with the same thing. It doesn't matter which one you use. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, understanding that 
understanding that um, the rules are the rules. I've always found it wildly amusing that blokes say, oh, well, you know, we used to, we need to be able to run to the ragged edge. Well, do you, really? Mm. And, and I discovered that you don't, actually. Well. Um, the, the problem that is, the problem that it does exist, uh, which the diary, doesn't matter what you use, can't fix, is when you're sitting there in a traffic jam um, and you can't move and you can't go anywhere, and the clock's ticking, and you're on your electronic diary. You can't. You just can't wipe that away. No. Uh, you shouldn't wipe it away with your paper diary either. But a lot of blokes do. Well, it's probably and, easier to, uh, yeah, wipe it away. I suppose if that's the right term. But you know, at the end of the day, that's where if the work diary was only looked at by the NHPR, mm. then perhaps there's a level there that that they can understand that compared mm. to some other areas of enforcement that probably don't care. Mm. It's just... Well, I, you know, I know as an owner-operator, I know as an owner-operator, I would do things myself that I would never ask a driver to do. Mm. Right? And, and they involved, that involved, you know, having a trailer in a particular place at a particular time because that's where it needed to be, you know? And, you know, making sure that you got through that camera so it didn't root up the rest of your week, even though you might have been tired to be there, you know. And, and and I honestly believe that the work diary creates as many problems as it solves. Um, um, I really do. True, definitely true. Um, and and the other thing, you know, that we talk about you know, my other great hobby horses. Everyone who's ever listened to anything I've said or read anything I've written is that I think that trip money should be just be abolished for, for employed drivers. Mm. Owner drivers, do whatever you like, right? Charge whatever you like, do whatever you like, work for free if you want to. I don't care, right? Mm. But employed drivers who have no choice but to be where they're going to be and work at the direction of the owner of the truck should be reimbursed that's, um, that's right. properly. Yep. And, you know, that, that includes detention time. Now, there are companies out there that do do that. And, you know, I applaud them. There are companies out there that make an effort to do that. And I also know there are people out there that say we cannot possibly afford to pay our drivers in that way. Mm. My, my, my word to you is, if that's the case, you need to charge your customers more. Mm. And then they all get all scared and say, oh, well, if we want to charge them more, we'll lose them to someone else. Yeah. Well, you know... Too bad. You know, uh, another question here would, would would or will interstate drivers be more EWD compliant if they're paid by the hour? I would say that they probably would be. Fair chance of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know. I know that for me, when I went from trip money to being paid by the hour, um, when I was on trip money and I was stuck in the bloody M7 traffic jam. You know, for me, that was just levels of frustration and I was looking at any opportunity to get out and get in and do things. I'd take, I'd not so much take risks, but the level of aggression or the level of unwillingness to share the road is much higher when I was on trip money than what it is when I'm on the hour, by the hour. I'm quite happy to sit there and listen to the tunes and observe the behaviour of the car drivers now because mm. it doesn't matter. I think... Um you know, a lot of the inefficiencies in other areas of the industry is actually what sometimes drives that 
you know, person to have to do a bit extra through the night or through the day or whatever because, you know, the, the, the simple fact, and we've all lived through this, that, you know, you have a time slot for 3 p.m., and mm. and that should have enabled you enough time to unload and you know whether either go and reload or go to you know get on the road to where you got to be the next day, and and that place you don't leave till 9 p.m. Um, you've still got to try to achieve the same thing in the week. Mm. So that's where the you know the inefficiencies of of the points where you load and unload sometimes mm. drive that more so than the need to actually just you know get the job done that that's what makes that happen but for a driver as well if you if you then don't achieve what you're supposed to get to the next day that that can simply affect that pay packet for the driver for a week um, yep because they, they might be you know in essence a shift down or you know if you're an owner operator you've still got to achieve what you set out to do at the start of the week um, oh yeah, yeah, you or, do. Or you may not even you may not even get home because yeah. you get caught, you know, twelve hundred k's from town because you missed that time slot on a Friday to load. Yeah. What do you do? Well, this is the this is the problem, isn't it? Mm. So you you then between a rock and a hard place that you're stuck thousand k's from home, um, and if you're an owner driver, the chances are you're not going to come home. That thousand k's because it's just cost you a couple of grand. Yeah, well, yeah, this is the problem. It has always been the problem. I I maintain the view that um, we would have safer roads if drivers were like employed drivers were paid mandatorily by the hour rather than by the kilometre. Mm. I think our roads. I think our roads would be safer from a a, a, a trucking point of view. I think we would have a lot less stress. For the drivers, a little bit more certainty about what they do. And the other point about it too is if, if all the drivers had to be paid in that way, then the companies would have to have a level of remuneration for the freight that they got to pay the drivers in that way. Mm. And I don't think that, you know, I mean, the day, everyone says, yeah, I remember having it told to me as an owner-driver, you know, yeah, if you want to keep this job, Mick, you're going to have to sharpen your pencil, you know? <laughs> And my answer to that usually was, well, no, I don't. Mm. And uh, I had the case where uh, when bulls, who no longer exist, um, were, were, uh, went out of the uh, Darwin-Adelaide uh, trade because of the train line and things like that, and they were going around Adelaide and they were oper- offering absolutely stupid prices for work. Mm. And someone from Bulls went to the crowd that I had the prime contract for, which was PPI Pipe, and they offered them a stupid price to do my work. And I had a phone call, eh? Amazing, isn't it? I had a phone call that said, oh, well, you know, they've offered us to do this price and we need you to sharpen your pencil, Mick. And I said, well, mate, if you want to go and use them, you use them. No problem. Um, and they said, well, you know, we've got to do it as economically as we can for the shareholders. And I said, yeah, mate, I get it. Where you go, have fun. Mm. And so what, what Bulls did was they started using the freight that I'd carted as, a, as prime freight um, to top load their trucks with. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. And, uh, of course, it never got where it was supposed to get on time. It was, they had damage, they had loss, they had 
delays. They had cock-ups after several cock-ups. And a bloke named Stuart, who was the operations manager, rang me up and said, hey, Mick, he said, you know, these these guys are causing us nothing but problems. And I said, well, tell someone who cares. Mm. Wonder why. Oh, we, we need you to come back. And I said, well, you know what the price is. Mm. And that's what happened. Well, and I believe that... you to you know, bail them out when they need yeah. something done in a hurry. And like, oh, that's right, oh, yeah. And, and you know, the reality of it is, is that we need to stand up. Now, for me, it worked. There weren't a lot of guys who were prepared to do farm deliveries of poly pipe, and I did, right? Mm. But I got paid well for it too. It was good. Put the kids through school, mm. you know? So all I can say to owner-operators is you have to take responsibility of yourself. You're perfectly free to go broke in the society if you want to, mm. right? Mm. It's up to you. So, you know, all the rate takers out there, all the bloke that are happy to cart steal for crap money, go your hardest. KNS will rip you off day after day after day after day. They'll let you cart it for the crap rates that they want to offer day after day after day after. They don't care, right? Put your 40-year-old freight liner on it and your bloody 40-year-old trailer on it. And, you know, as long as you've got some Ozbinders, you'll be gold, you know, and a bit of a tarp with a few patches in it. Go your hardest. That's what you're competing against with your with your brand new SAR legend. Mm. You know, and if you haven't got the brains to work it out that you're working for peanuts, I can't help you. Very true. Very true. Well, anyway, we've anyway, got there right you up go. into the hour here. Um, yeah, we just just say again. That just to circle back. Circle back. Just to circle back. The NHBR want to remind heavy vehicle drivers the critical importance of practising safe behaviours, including taking rest breaks and meal breaks. Mm. And, uh, you know, remember the signs of fatigue and education is an investment in safety. There you go. I did just have a text message here. Can an EWD be used as an individual or does a company need to use them as well? No, mm -hmm. most of these you can sign up as an individual you absolutely instead can. Instead of giving your yellow pages at the end of the week, you just email them off your EWD. So That's right. You can sign up on your own, and that is perfectly legal and, um, yeah, as simple as that. So, it's very, very simple. If anyone wants to know any more about it, I'm actually thinking about doing an article in, uh, in our magazine about EWDs, how they work, and how to get onto it. Mm, yeah. Uh, Very good. So there you go. Once well, again, thanks to uh, thanks to you and thanks to everyone else. Thanks to Renko for sponsoring the show and all that. And just a reminder: next Wednesday night, we will all be having a well-deserved break while we travel. We will travel, <laughs> and we'll see you at the Croy Truck Show. We will be back Saturday night for Saturday Night Live. Uh, and uh, there you go. Night. Friday night will be Friday. I'm talking about this Saturday oh, night this coming. One. Yeah, right, eh? yes, It'll be right. Friday night in, in a week, yeah, Australia Day. Yeah, it will be, yeah. So, right, eh? No worries. Good to talk to you, Mike. Good to talk to you too, mate. Thanks to Lara for coming on the show and talking about all that sort of stuff. And I really, uh, really thought that was a, a very worthwhile session. Yeah. All right, Mike. If you can't be good. Spectacular. Hello, I'm Terry Daniel. The Prime Minister is striking an upbeat tone about our relationship with China, despite Beijing shifting blame for an incident which left Australian Navy.